Good morning, everybody. Wonderful to be here with you this morning. My favorite day of the week, you all know that. Uh, This week, Ligonier Ministries and uh, Lifeway Research released their biannual State of Theology. Every two years, they put out um, statements, put them out to the general public, to different denominations, to different Christians, and they either agree or disagree with the statements they put out. You can go search it on the web and you can see it broken down by you know, just Americans in general, Christians in general, evangelicals. So I just wanna give you this year's uh, responses from some self-identified evangelicals. I mean, people like us, like go to you know, church-governed, Bible-believing churches. These are some of the things they said. First statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Judaism and Islam. Self-identified evangelicals agreed 58%. Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 44%. The Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. 55%. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 66%, two-thirds. This is probably a post-COVID thing. Worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for attending a church. 56%. Gender identity is a matter of personal choice. 33%. And finally, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not literally true. 50%. So they tally up all these results, they present it to you, and they have a little write-up at the end. This is the last paragraph of the write-up from Ligonier. These results convey the ongoing need for the church to be engaged in helping unbelievers by providing a well-reasoned defense of the Christian faith and helping believers by strengthening their clarity and conviction regarding why they believe what they do. The people of God must continue to obey the Great Commission by communicating the whole counsel of God in biblical evangelism and discipleship. This is the last sentence. The need is great, but the power and promises of God can equip the church to bring truth and light to a deceived and dark world. Amen. You know, the sad fact of the matter is that over the last 250 years, the Western church has fundamentally changed from what we were leading up to that. Over the last 25 years, with the amazing advances we've had in technology, that enabled the deception of Satan to spread with mind-bending speed, we've changed even more. As we've seen through this series in 1 Samuel, God has not changed. So here's the thing, where we deviated from him and his will, we've gone wrong. Where we have chosen to do church our way instead of God's way, we have gone wrong. And I think it's evident the church has gone wrong. As a whole, we have messed up pretty badly but God is still in control. See, it isn't a matter of whether or not his will is going to be done. Here's the question. Is the American church going to be part of it or not? And the fact of the matter is that on these self-proclaimed Christians, that they, they just don't know what they believe. They don't know why they should believe it. So we can't count on them, can we? It is on those who know the truth, who believe the truth, We need to make a change by living out the truth. Because if those who know the truth and say they believe the truth don't make choices in accordance with that truth, then what good is knowing it? 
Oh, and that brings me to Israel in our passage today. They messed up. And not just in this event where they, you know, turned their backs on Yahweh and chose a king. Israel messed up a lot, kind of like us. They were given the truth. They knew the truth. They believed the truth, kind of like us. And yet they often chose not to live their lives like they knew the truth. And yet we've seen through it all, God is in control. He's able to use them and us and every circumstance to advance his kingdom. And we see every time Israel turned back to God and acknowledged him as their king, he worked in amazing ways. He was able to use the horrible circumstances his people found themselves in, not only to carry out his will, but even for their good. And God can do the same for the church in our country. He can do the same for the church today in 2022. And all we can do, brothers and sisters, is make sure it starts right here with us. Amen? Let's pray one more time. Gracious God, Lord, I turn this sermon over to you. God, I pray that you would speak to us by your word, Lord. That Holy Spirit, you would speak to help us to see the urgency of our mission, Lord. The great calling that you have placed on us. But above all, the great salvation that you have given to us, Lord, that we may be able to choose to live for you. So work in our hearts today, God, in a mighty way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's consider Israel this morning. Chapter begins, and Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. So this starts with this and here. This is just, you know, a continuation of what we looked at last week, right? Saul is victorious against the Ammonites. He's recognized as king. He officially becomes the king. Samuel and all the people come before God to renew the kingdom. And Samuel has something to say to them. Remember, we saw Saul and all the people were rejoicing greatly in the last chapter, in the last verse of chapter 11. Samuel, not so much. So he's now given them his, his farewell address, an address to the people he's led for literally his whole life, and, and he has a few things to remind them of. And he says in verse 2, And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. This is object lesson here. And behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth until this day. He's telling Israel, okay, you got what you wanted. Remember, they came to Samuel. They said, you're old. Your sons are wicked. We don't want you. Give us a king. So Samuel's saying, all right, well, now you have your king. Yeah, I'm old. You guys know all about my kids. And then he reminds them, I have walked before you from my youth. And we've seen in this book, Samuel literally did that. He served God and Israel from the time he was weaned from his mother. I mean, he was a, a toddler since he's been in God's service, basically. First as a priest, and then he was a prophet, and then he was a judge. And Samuel's pointing out to them here, just realize, guys, this has worked out pretty well for you. He says, here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Samuel tells them, I've served you guys my entire life. I've never wronged anyone. I didn't get rich off your backs. He says, I didn't impress any of you. He says, I took no bribe to blind my eyes with it, which is a direct quote almost from the law. In Exodus 23, God's discussing what true social justice is, and he says, 
You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and it subverts the cause of those who are in the right. In other words, Samuel says, I have served you, Israel, and I've taken, I've taken nothing in return. Not only that, I have followed the law and I have led with justice. And this is just another way that Samuel points us forward to Christ, who spent his entire life following the law perfectly, who rather than being served came to serve, who rather than seeking his own gain sought the gain of his people. Christ who lived and died for justice to be done. And yet, like Israel with Samuel, sometimes God's people today, we want something other than Christ who did all of this, don't we? Instead, like Israel with Saul, we want something or someone else that we get to pick to set the standard for us. See, Samuel's not here just tooting his own horn to say, look how great I was for you guys. No, he's contrasting with what God gave them with what they were asking for. He's telling them what's in store for them because they rejected what God had given them. He's telling them all that he, Samuel, he says, look, look what I haven't done. Remember, God appointed him as leader. He says, I haven't taken from you. In fact, I've given. I haven't oppressed you. In fact, we saw a few chapters ago, he freed them from oppression. He said, I haven't taken any bribes. No, I've executed justice. And now they're going to get Saul instead. Remember what Samuel said to the people when they asked for a king? He said, hey, the king is going to get rich off your backs. He's going to take your possessions. He's even going to take your children to serve him. In fact, he told them, you shall be his slaves. And after that warning, Israel still insisted on a king. So Samuel here again points out, he hasn't done any of that. He's actually been a great leader for them. And here's the thing, the people agree. They know it. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hands. Yeah, Sammy, you're absolutely right. We couldn't ask for a better leader than you. We couldn't ask for more than God give us. So what did they think they were asking for when they asked for something else? Do you know as ridiculous as it sounds? We all do the same thing a lot. And we can look at Israel and the clear warnings against going against God and all the reminders of how going against God's desire to do it their own way just has turned out terrible. We can look at Israel and see how they agree, yes, I agree, I know this. Doing it God's way has always worked out. Doing it our own way has never worked out. I mean, how could they be so foolish, right? And then here we are, the church in this country in 2022, and a third of us think that our gender is our decision and not God's, and two-thirds of, thirds of us think that God honors worship that leaves Christ completely out of it. And I guess we should expect this from a church where less than half believe the Bible is literally true. Because, I mean, how horrible would it be? I mean, think about, think about foolishness. Imagine believing the Bible is 100% true and then making choices contrary to it anyway. That's utter madness, isn't it? That would be the ultimate in foolishness, if you ask me. And that's basically what Israel does here. They had the warnings. They had the reminder of how it always turned out when they did it God's way. And yet they choose their own way. Right here, before God, they say, we know it, but we're going a different way anyway. And he said to them in verse 5, The Lord is witness against you, and has anointed his witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Yes, Samuel. Before the God we know is 100% real. Before the God whose word we 100% believe. Before the God who we 100% believe his way is better for us. We still want another king. 
And Samuel actually says, well, there were two witnesses to this. There's two witnesses to what we're all agreeing to. Two witnesses that are saying, yes, I've been blameless before you. God has only ever been good. God and his anointed. Yahweh and Saul. See, Samuel, Samuel is calling Saul to task here, the new king. He's bringing him into the discussion as king. Samuel wants Saul to realize what's happening here. I mean, imagine being the guy when you realize, well, they chose me instead of God. But the people here say, he is witness, meaning Yahweh. He is witness. They're swearing to God that what they're saying is true. And Samuel says to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Yes, Samuel agrees. Yes, you're right. Yahweh is witness to what we're all saying here today. But then he points out something else about Yahweh. He is the God that has always provided leaders he chose himself who have led Israel out of bondage and brought them into, slave, brought them into salvation. Saul's pointing out one last time that what they've done in demanding a kid, king is reject God. And he's reminding them what God has done. I mean, if you, remembered, if you remember what God had done, why would you ever reject something that's only ever worked out for your good? So Samuel says, okay, guys, here's your king. The king you demanded. Before God, you swore. I led you with integrity. You swore before God. He has only ever saved you. You swore before God. All he's ever done is provide for you. Okay, guys, here's your king. Have fun. And then he goes on. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he has performed for you and for your fathers. See, I was not letting this go. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. So what Samuel was saying is, okay, guys, now God be my witness against all of you. And he recounts their whole history up to that point. Jacob and Israel, they wind up in Egypt. They wind up oppressed. There's that word again. And when they cry out to God, he sends Moses and Aaron to save them. And then God, through Moses and Aaron, gives them the lands. And right away they forget God again. And they wind up oppressed by the nations around them. And there was nothing they could do about it. Nothing. And notice when they forgot God, they went after other gods. They forsook God for something else every single time. But when they cried out to God, when they repented, when they turned back to him, God sent judges to bring them salvation each and every time. And Samuel names some of the judges. Jerubal, that's Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. He includes himself here in his long line of saviors. Remember, when the Philistines oppressed Israel and the ark wound up being forgotten about for 20 years, Samuel calls Israel together to put away their foreign gods. We saw us in chapter 7. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you were returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. And he would deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the balls and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. I mean, this could come right out of the book of Judges, can it? 
I mean, this is almost exactly the kind of thing we read in the book of Judges because that cycle was still happening. Samuel is again pointing out, look, all you did, all you could have wanted, all you needed to do is rely on God in every time he provided for you. But Samuel's pointing out that it was God that provided for them. It wasn't him. He wasn't naming himself as their savior. He's saying it was God. He was saying, look, when God does things his way, he saves. When you do things God's way, you get saved. He tells them, if you repent and turn back to God, it's him. It's God that will deliver them. I mean, listen again to what Samuel says. He says, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in his place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them to the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hands of the Philistines, into the hands of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of your enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side, and you live in safety. So I was saying, think about it. Look back. Think about what you've done, guys. You have failed at every turn doing things your way. And now look at what God has done. He sends godly leadership, and he saves. He chooses the instruments of his salvation, and he provides his people deliverance and safety. And Israel, in choosing a king and rejecting Yahweh, they are actually rejecting the salvation that God brought to them time and time again. And note here how the sovereignty of God works so beautifully alongside human responsibility. God did all of this. God chose to save his people time and time again, and yet his people still had a choice. They always get to decide what to do with that salvation. And it's the cycle we see over and over again with Israel, right? Their sin, God's salvation. Their sin, God's salvation. Their sin, God's salvation. Their choice, God's choice. Their choice, God's choice. And through the whole cycle, what we see is man left on his own chooses to sin. And God chooses to save. God chooses to save. And Israel knew that. And yet, Samuel says, when you saw that Nahesh, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. They knew the truth, but didn't choose to live according to the truth. God chose to save, and they chose to sin anyway. And the cycle has just continued until this point, because Samuel tells them, well, now, guys, <clears throat> now that Saul has won the battle against the Ammonites, now that you have the king that you asked for, now that you have rejected Yahweh's means of deliverance, there is a fundamental change taking place here. The time of the judges now is officially over, and the era of the monarchy has begun in Israel. The time of following God's chosen leaders that he raises up, like Moses and Aaron, the judges like Samuel, that's over. They now want to follow a man-made king. And if you just read from here through the book of kings, you'll see how that plays out for Israel, just like you think it would. So the point is the change from judges to a king, it's really, for Israel, a change from doing things God's way to doing things man's way. That's the fundamental change that happens here in Israel 3,000 years ago. That is the fundamental change that has happened to the church. And it continues to happen before our eyes. 
Like Israel, we can see what our choices have done. It's very clear. Samuel says in verse 13, Now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And we see again that work between God and man, right? Saul says, this is the king you've chosen. This is the king you have asked for. But yet he says, Saul is the king Yahweh has set over them. Because remember, Yahweh gets to choose the king. He said, this is how it would work. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to want a king, and I'm going to pick the king. But yet it was Israel that demanded the king, despite the fact that they already had a king, a king that always saved them, a king that always worked things out for them no matter what. They messed up. But God is still in control. It's no different like when they, would, they put God aside to worship other gods over in the book. They messed up, but we saw God was still in control. It's no different than when they did that over and over again in the time of the judges. They kept messing up, but God was always in control. It's no different than when God sends Moses and Aaron, and yet an entire generation turns aside from doing it God's way. They messed up, but God was still in control. And here they messed up again by demanding a king. But God was still in control. God chose the king, and now, never they had their king, they had a choice to make. Will they trust God or continue trusting themselves? Will they do things now God's way or their way? And this is the choice Samuel puts before them in verse 14. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Even though they messed up, even though things weren't all that good among God's people, even though they had by and large turned away from God and his ways, Samuel says, you guys still have a choice here. You could return to God, or you can keep doing things your way. You can be God's people God's way, or you can be God's people your way. And he says, just like always, it's, just, it's amazing in the Old Testament how patient God is, isn't it? It's just amazing. As always, if you will now, even now, after all you've done, if you will return to God, Samuel says, he'll make sure it all works out. Even though we made a mess of things, he says, it will work out. The other option is to rebel against God, to disobey, and he'll make sure it doesn't work out. But no, now that they had a king, there's a new wrinkle introduced to this whole thing. This is why Samuel calls Saul to be a witness to this whole thing. He says, Saul, buddy, watch what's going on here. There's a new element now to obedience for Israel, okay? Both they, the people, and their king, they and their king that they asked for, they all had to follow God if things were to work out well for the nation of Israel, right? The king is responsible for the people following God. He was responsible to the people to follow God. And since Israel wanted a king, God says, well, if he decides to turn from God, then it's just like you turned from me. And for us, let's not forget that God gave us a king. And our king was so obedient that he wound up dying on a cross for our sins. Our king followed his God. The question isn't about our king. The question is about us. But here for Israel, there was still a question, right? Is the king going to follow God? And remember, the main command 
is to fear Yahweh. That's what we see here. The main command is to fear Yahweh. God gives rules for the king as we saw it. What it all boiled down to was this in Deuteronomy 17. The king had to learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And we need to keep that in mind because of what happens next. I want, I want us to see what happens here. Now God, a sovereign God, gives his people, God does this, he gives his people very bad circumstances to work it for their good. Look at what he does. Samuel tells them they have a choice. If you fear God, things will go well. And if you don't, they will not. And then he says this. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. Samuel was giving another reminder. You guys messed up. And so often, as we've seen multiple times in the book, we suffer in the world because of our own sin, right? I, I know we're quick to blame God when we suffer, but we put ourselves in bad positions because of our sin, and we suffer for it. We're like Israel here. We mess up, and we reap what we sow. But God is still in control. And sometimes God will make the bad situation we've put ourselves in worse to work good for us. Here, God sends thunder and rain, and this is bad. Why is it bad? Because Samuel says, well, is it, isn't it wheat harvest time? This, this happened in late May or early June around Pentecost, and Israel's dry season was then. And the thunderstorms don't happen during dry season. We all know this, we're from New Jersey. When it's awful and disgusting and humid out, then we get thunderstorms. So God's sending thunderstorms, and there wouldn't naturally be thunderstorms. And what does that mean? Well, that means that flash flooding is very likely. Think about like here, when we get hit with a horrible storm, like the end of October when a hurricane comes. What happens? All our basements flood and we're really put out, right? Like really put out. I imagine your house is made of dirt. I mean, it could get a lot worse. And this is the situation Israel's in right now. God sends this thunderstorm. It starts pouring. There shouldn't be a thunderstorm. They are literally afraid for their very lives. But while this is a sign from God that Israel has messed up. They have made a huge mistake in turning their backs on him. God uses every circumstance for good. Israel made their choice. They were held responsible for it. They got what they deserved. But God is still in control and uses even terrible circumstances for their good. Let's look at the result in verse 18. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. God warns them, you and your king better fear me or bad things will happen. And then God makes bad things happen. And through that, he causes people to fear him. It's amazing. God is good, brothers and sisters. All the time, he is good. No matter what the earthly circumstances are, no matter what they seem like to us, God is good. Even when the rain comes, even when the floodwaters rise, if our house is founded on the solid rock instead of sand, what can the storm do to us? And what does it mean to build your house on the solid rock? What does Jesus say? Hear the word and do it. And look at what happens. Israel repents and turns to God. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Pray for us, Samuel. 
Pray for us. God has brought salvation through you before. Do it again. Please do it again. We now realize what a mistake we made. We shouldn't have asked for a king. We shouldn't have desired our own way over God's way. And look how God, oh, he's so good. I'm at a loss for words. God is so good. Listen, what's done is done, right? There's nothing Israel could do about their past sins. There's nothing we can do about, about our past sins. And yet God, even in horrible circumstances, horrible circumstances that we cause by our sin, God still loves us. God is still gracious. God is still merciful. God is not a God of second chances. God's a God of like hundredth chances. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Yes, Israel, you've sinned. What else is new? But even now, if you turn to me, God says, if you do not turn away towards empty things, things that cannot profit you, things that cannot save you, he says, for my own glory, I will save you again. If you turn to me, I will be your God. And then Samuel continues, he says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Samuel says, of course, I will pray for you. I mean, don't forget, God chose him to be the leader. And Samuel, even though he's surrounded by an entire nation of people who turn their back on God, Samuel is not about to do that. That would be sin on his part. See, no matter what anybody else did, no matter what everybody else did, Samuel not fulfilling the calling on his life would be sin for Samuel. No matter who else chose to turn their back on God and do things their own way, Samuel himself still had the choice to follow God. And Samuel's not going to sin. And he calls his people to follow him in this obedience. He says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Remember who God is, he says. Remember what he's done. Over and over again. Remember what he's done. And fear him. Serve him. Be faithful to him. In light of all he's done for you. In light of his faithfulness, Samuel says. In light of God's faithfulness. Be faithful to him no matter what. But he gives a warning along with this. Verse 25, but if you still do wickedly, you should be swept away, both you and your king. He's speaking in flood terms here. Remember, the thunderstorm was a result of their sin. They and their position, possessions could literally be swept away by this. And he says, this is a metaphor for you, guys. If you fall back into sin, you are the king you've chosen. The result of your own sin, what you are responsible for, the choices that you make, they could sweep you away. The choice is yours. So you see, there's really another way to look at the cycle of sin and salvation. And this is the right way, if you ask me. I mean, yes, Israel would sin and God would save them, and Israel would sin and God would save them. But note that God saved first. 
It always begins with what God has done. When Samuel begins his recap of everything, back in verse 6, he starts with salvation. He says, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. It's basically the same way God starts the Ten Commandments, right? God doesn't give us the choice until he saves us. God saved Israel. So Samuel starts with what God has done. Then after speaking of God's salvation, Samuel recaps the cycle of sin and salvation and sin and salvation. After reminding them of their Savior, Samuel tells them, yet you chose to sin. Yet God chose to save. Yet you chose to sin. Yet God chose to save. So the right way to look at this is salvation, then the choice to sin. God saved first, then they sinned. And then God saved, and they had a choice, and they sinned. And then God saved, and they had a choice, and then they sinned. It's God's choice, then our choice. And that's where Israel was here. Israel knew full well what God had done. And they chose to do things their way instead of his anyway. They knew who saved them, but chose against them anyway. And this is very clearly what the church has done in this country. It didn't happen overnight. But you know what? We, here in this room, people like us, we always think, right? We are those who claim to be God's people. And yet the whole Christian world that claims to be God's people have decided to do things their own way, to do church their way, to be God's people their way. I think we need to remember that God saved first, that God sent his son, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king. He sent him from heaven to take on flesh and live a perfect life, to follow the law perfectly, before we had done anything. And to take on our sin, and living a perfect life. He sacrificed himself so that he may be, as the Bible says, both just and the justifier of those who believe in him. He did this before we did anything. He then died on the cross and rose on the third day so that we could know, we can objectively know that Christ has done this, that our salvation has been completed, that it is finished before we did a thing. And then he ascended on high, and he took his throne as the king. He earned it, brothers and sisters. He earned it. And then he renewed the kingdom by renewing us, by sending his Holy Spirit. And here we are. God did all this. God saved. This was his choice. We had done nothing. He sovereignly saved his people. He chose to do it at the cost of his own life. And now the choice is ours. And the choices we've made as the church over the last 250 years, have drawn us away from God. We have chosen to do things our way time and time again. And now two-thirds of us see no difference between a Christian, a Jew, or a Muslim. We can just remove the one who died for our sins, and it makes no difference. Why? Well, because almost half of us doubt that Jesus was even God. We have no idea who our Savior even is. We can ignore the fact that God himself came and took on flesh and lived a perfect life and took on our sin. We can ignore that. Why? Because two-thirds of us believe we're inherently good. Why the heck do I need a savior? There's people in the church. We can remove the atonement completely out of church and just try to be good people. Almost as many don't think that being part of a church Matters one lick. 
we all get to decide for ourselves what the church should be. Right? We can decide for ourselves what God will accept as worship. In other words, here's, here's my summary. Ready? The American church has decided we don't need Jesus anymore. And before we decide this is an other people problem, I just want to take a minute and let each of us consider how different from Israel we actually are. They knew. They were 100% sure of who God is. They were 100% sure of who their Savior was, and they still chose their own way. And we might believe, yeah, no, there's a huge difference between us and people who follow other religions. We may have complete assurance, no, Jesus is God in the flesh. We believe with all our heart and mind that, oh, I need his sacrifice because I am a sinner. But how does knowing that affect our choices? As I reflected on my message from last week, if you remember, my point was that God uses ordinary people and ordinary means to accomplish amazing things. I take it back. Not because I don't think we agree with that. I think we all agree with that. I, I think we should agree with that. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that our idea of ordinary and our idea of amazing are just way off. What the Bible describes as ordinary church, as ordinary Christians, it sounds pretty extraordinary to 21st century years, doesn't it? Things like going without for the sake of God, taking in strangers, not laying up for ourselves earthly treasures, not being anxious, not seeking our own way, just, just naming a few here. Why do these things sound so radical to us? It's because we've strayed so far from the simple message of the gospel and we have lost sight of a truth. And now, brothers and sisters, the American church is being swept away before our eyes because of our sin. We messed up. But brothers and sisters, God is still in control. As I said at the start, the need is great, but the power and the promises of God can equip the church to bring truth and light to a deceived and dark world. Just like Israel, there is nothing we can do about the past sins of the church, of this church, each of us individually, nothing. But we can, right now, decide, just like Samuel, no matter what anybody else does, no matter what everybody else does, I'm going to obey. Even if everyone around me should go their own way, I will still choose to go God's way. So as a church, we can choose. We have the choice. We can be a church that is a city on a hill. We can live in community together the way Jesus called us to. We can all use our gifts as we're called to. We can all sacrifice for each other and for the kingdom like we're called to. As a church and as individuals, each of us, let's let, our, let's let our light shine. Let's choose to shine the light of Christ and his truth into a dark world. Let's choose to use our gifts to serve the church and serve God. Let's choose it. And if we do, we will see a fundamental change in the church. And I believe we'll see a fundamental change in our country. Or we can choose to be like most American Christians and like most American churches, just based on the numbers. It's most. We can decide. We have the choice. We can just not be part of what God wants to do in the world. 
And if you think I'm being overdramatic, just consider this. Ask yourself one question before God. Do I have a biblical view of the church or a 21st century American view of the church? You know, we all tend to think we're in such an enviable position historically, right? Because we can look back on past times, 500, 1,000, 3,000 years ago to Israel. Man, look at all the advantages that we have. We have clean water to drink. Have for hundreds of years. The expected lifespan of humans has doubled in 250 years. We have made such breakthroughs. We have technology. It allows us to do more, to live a richer and a fuller life. We have an abundance of food available to us. We have advantages today that people in 2002 didn't have. Think about that. We have a wealth of knowledge right in our pockets, don't we? Even in the last 20 years, scientific research has advanced exponentially. There are cures for diseases there weren't 20 years ago. Most things that we just think are nothing, we take something over the counter. It was a death sentence 200 years ago. We know more about the world than ever. Not only that, we can call or send a text to a friend or a coworker halfway around the world. Heck, we can go see them in two days if we want, instead of six months, and we still get upset by layovers, right? We have, right now at this moment, we have every physical, every intellectual, and every social advantage in America in 2022. How many of those things, or the next hundred things on a list we can come up with, have anything to do with God? And the American church, and even in this room, and I include myself in this, please make no mistake. We sometimes look at our physical health and the number in our bank account, the number of followers we have on social media, the title on our business card, the letters on our nicely framed degrees. And for some reason, we expect that to determine our happiness or that to determine our self-worth or that to determine our success. When we know 100% that none of that is our purpose. So we have a choice to make. What have we, American Christians, who have all of those advantages, who have the greatest advantage of all knowing who Christ is and believing it, what will we choose to do with that? What will we choose to pursue? Knowing what God has chosen to do, what will we choose? It's a question we all need to ask ourselves. And we need to realize there's only one right choice. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Like community church, consider the great things that God has done for us. And let's make our choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read through this book, I just blown away by your patience. I'm blown away by your pursuit of people who constantly run from you. I'm blown away by the fact that you save 
over and over again that you only ever choose to save God. And even when your people choose to go against you, you pursue us to save. When we do things our way, Lord, you, you let them go our way only so you can save us, God, so you can grow us, so you can draw us to you so that we can live lives of holiness more and more, that we can shine lights brighter and brighter into a dark world, God. You do all this. That's what you choose to do for us. So God, all of these things we pursue, all the ways we think wrongly about who we are in you and what the church is supposed to be, Father, in your sovereignty, we pray to you. Take those from us. Help us to see clearly, Lord. Help us to build our lives on the rock. To know your word, to believe your word, and to live your word, God. As you said in this chapter, Lord, may it be all for your glory. May the whole world know who you are through us, God. Help us to pursue your salvation for the worlds, for us to continue us in our sanctification, Lord. Just work mightily through us, God. Help us to fully surrender, truly surrender to you, God. Not give up some modern conveniences, God. Not do what we think qualifies as ordinary. Make us what you would have us be, no matter what that means, God. Take our very lives. We lay this in your hands, God, because we want to see you glorified on this earth. We want to see you glorified in our church. We want to see you glorified in our own lives. We want you and only you, God. Help us to choose you. We thank you. We love you. We praise you for who you are and all you've done. God, we praise you for all you're yet to do. You are our God. You are our Savior. You alone. So we worship you this morning. Lord. We lay ourselves down at your feet. We bow everything to you. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.